So about two weeks ago, I was interviewed on a podcast about pastors and humility. <laughs> and they said, you know, how do you guys, you know, keep yourself from, you know, becoming too full of yourself? And I just said, you just got to keep doing it and eventually something falls apart. It's great. So, hey, if you're watching online, you missed it. But um, j just like my forehead was on the center screen here at church, it was special. And... <laughs> I worked on what I was going to say like for hours and I was like making this impassioned plea and all anybody could think about was my forehead. <laughs> so good. Anyway, oh, so great to see you whether you're here in the room or joining us online. I'm thrilled to have you along for the ride. Um, and as many of you know, today we get to continue a series that we've called Virtual Israel. Uh, I mentioned it last week, but I really couldn't be any more excited about it. I've been working on this content for more than a year now, uh, preparing to take a whole bunch of you on an adventure to the land of Israel. We had a trip planned for April and another that was going to leave in just like two weeks. Uh, but as you may have noticed, a previously unimagined eventuality made international travel a bit complicated along with the rest of life. Uh, and, and so the content that I had worked up was on, in a folder on my desktop looking at me day after day after day, sort of smoldering. Uh, and that is until now, because between now and Thanksgiving, I want to take you on a virtual trip to Israel, one that doesn't require us leaving the comforts of West Michigan or having to endure airplane food. Can I get an amen? Yeah, so there's that, right? So here's how it's going to work each week. Uh, during the series, I'll introduce you to a site that was included on our itinerary for the trips, and then I'll teach some of the content that I had prepared for that site. And as you'll see, uh, these sites served as the settings for some iconic Old Testament stories Stories that ultimately set the stage for Jesus. And so anyway, uh, today we get to explore one of the most significant narratives found in the entire Bible. And while we're not exactly sure where this story took place, a great place to examine it is in a valley in the south of Israel called Timnah. And uh, here's a fly-in from our friends at Google Earth, so you can kind of see what's going on. We leave, uh, of course, the United States, zooming into Israel. You can see the Nile Delta and then we're right on the edge of the Sinai Peninsula, uh, and it's a national park in Israel called Timnah. Uh, Timnah is around 19 miles north of the Red Sea, so you may remember uh, that from the biblical narrative as well. Um, and it's also one of the most hauntingly beautiful places that I have ever visited. Uh, for thousands of years, the Timnah Valley was mined for copper. Uh, in fact, excavations have found over 10,000 copper mines that were used in ancient times as far back as they believe 6,000 years ago. Uh, so today, visitors to Timnah often hike or bike alongside mountain trails in order to view highly unusual redstone formations. And they do all of it. Here's a picture of one of the really cool formations. Uh, and you get to ride or walk by these things while sweating profusely, uh, especially in the summer. Uh, the day my wife and I were there last July, the heat index at 10 a.m. was a balmy 102 degrees. Um, and the only shade you're going to find is if you're walking in the shade of a mountain. When we got off the bus, it literally, like I inhaled, it felt like we were breathing air out of a hairdryer. Uh, and, so, and then we were there for like four hours. It was great. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> that's why we were going in the spring and in the fall. See, that's how we did that. But anyway, in my opinion, the best use of a visit to Timnah is to explore what just might be the most significant moment in the entire Old Testament narrative. And it happened, again, we're not sure exactly where, but in a location that looked very much like Timnah. And so we spend about two hours when we get there hiking up to Mount Timnah, which is one of the highest peaks in the park. 
um, and we explore the story of the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, but in order to really show you what was going on in that story, I first need to take you back to the first verses in the Bible that sort of set the stage for what happens at Mount Sinai. And hang with me, I'll show you what I mean. Uh, so right at the beginning, the author of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, begins his account by recording that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth, he says, was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, in the Hebrew, that phrase translated formless and empty is tohu vabohu. Is that not the greatest thing ever? That's your vocab word of the day. Tohu vabohu, really fun to say, literally translates wild and waste. It communicates a sense of utter chaos and a total lack of peace. And then as the account continues, we learn that God said, let there be. And actually, he said it a few times. And each time he said it, his words became flesh, so to speak. Out of the pandemonium came beauty and order. Things like light and sky and water and ground and plants and animals, and eventually, people. And in the beginning, um, the author tells us that, that it all was good. Everything in the beginning worked as God had intended it to work. Everything was connected, everything was at peace, everything had a place, and everything was in its place. Though it was made up of countless interconnected parts, creation, the whole of creation, was working as one. Well, then came the day when the first people rebelled against God. They came to believe the lie that they could find a better life by trusting in themselves than by trusting in him. And as a result of that decision, creation began to descend back into chaos. However, as the Bible's authors record, God wasn't finished with creation, not by a long shot. In fact, the rest of the Bible chronicles God's plan to one day make things right again, to restore the peace that was intended from the beginning. And last week, if you were with us, we saw how that journey of restoration began one day around 4,000 years ago when God made a promise to a man named Abraham. He pledged to one day bless the world through Abraham's descendants by personally paying the price for their sins. And if you missed that talk, please take a minute to go back and listen to it this week. Actually, it'll take you like 29 minutes, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, it's no exaggeration to say that story lays the foundation for everything else that follows in the Bible. Uh, but this week, we get to experience the moment when that journey towards peace or a restored peace took a dramatic step forward. Because 500 years after making the promise to Abraham, God again makes contact, this time with Abraham's descendants who had been enslaved in Egypt. And he dramatically rescues them. Uh, you can read the account in the second book in the Bible. It's called Exodus. And then around 40 days after rescuing them, leads them to the base of a mountain in Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, a place which, as I mentioned, is almost indistinguishable from Israel's Timna Valley. Here's a picture of the traditional Mount Sinai to give you a sense. It's, it's like no matter where you go in the Sinai, it sort of looks similar. Anyway, according to the Bible's authors, God led his people to Mount Sinai for three reasons. And the first is actually revealed shortly before he rescues them from Egypt. When God says to the people of Israel, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And it's interesting, Bible nerds, when they go after this passage, they notice that the word that's translated take would have been a bit unexpected. It's the Hebrew word laka, which actually is a second vocab word of the day, so you get two, right? 
Uh, And it's the word most often used to describe what happens on Saturday afternoons in the month of June between brides and grooms, right? In other words, the author of Exodus records that God saw what would happen at Mount Sinai between himself and the children of Israel as a, well, as a wedding. Abraham's descendants were to become like a bride to God. And actually, more evidence of God's intention is presented as the story continues. The author of Exodus records some fascinating details regarding the day Moses ascends Mount Sinai to meet with God. Here's, here's what he records. He says, Then Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob. It's another way of saying Abraham's kids. And what you are to tell the people of Israel. He goes on and he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And then he gets to this. He says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. And the Hebrew translated treasured possession in this passage is the word segula. And it's the same word Jewish people use during a marriage proposal. It carries the sense that I have considered every option in the world and you're the one for me. So, So the first reason God brings Abraham's descendants to Sinai was to establish a specific type of relationship or maybe better, a partnership with them. So That's the first thing. The second reason God brings Abraham's descendants to Sinai is revealed shortly after he gives them the Ten Commandments. When God announces that he intends to live with his chosen people, and not just in a spiritual sense, the author of Exodus records God's instructions to Moses to have the people, and he says this, make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And just notice that God desires to dwell among and in relationship with his bride. And to that end, he directs them to build a portable home, a tent called the tabernacle for him. And by the way, there's a fantastic life-size replica of the tabernacle that we plan to tour when we visit Timnah. Now, and it's adjacent to a rather unique gift shop, not surprisingly, where you can buy t-shirts and 16 varieties of hummus and some of the best ice cream bars on the planet. Okay, you heard it here. Uh, But that said, the tabernacle model is a bit touristy and yet nonetheless fascinating because it can't help, you can't help but imagine what it must have been like when God first tabernacled or dwelled with and among his people. That's the second reason. The third reason, uh, and I think the most significant reason that God reveals for bringing Abraham's descendants to Mount Sinai was to give them a mission, something they were to do, actually maybe better, someone they were called to be as his partners in the world. And the author of Exodus describes their moment of commissioning this way. He records that God said, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's easy to miss, but in these few verses, God actually tells Israel the ultimate reason why he had rescued them from Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai. He says, in effect, my goal is that all peoples on earth would come to know me, like the whole earth is mine, and and I want to reclaim the peace that has been lost. And so to that end, I want to partner with you by appointing you, and that you there is plural, so Southern fans in the house, you know, it's like y'all, appointing y'all to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
which raises uh, some interesting questions, at least for me. Like, what did those first people understand when God invited them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? And I think after some study, that answer comes in two parts. So what I want to do is talk a bit about what they thought of when they heard the word kingdom in the ancient world. And then I want to talk about what they thought of when they heard the word priests. Uh, so in the English language, first kingdom, the word kingdom to us implies a geography over which the king reigns. For example, we might say that the king of England ruled over all the territories conquered by England, at least until the modern era, where we're not exactly sure what a king of England would do other than wave to people, right? So there you go. Um, but in the Hebrew mind, in the, in the children of Israel's worldview, the concept of kingdom was a bit more broad. To them, a kingdom is any place the king, or in this case, God, is obeyed, where his will is being done. And, and so if Israel is going to be a kingdom of priests, then the first thing they would have understood was that they were called to be a community of people who were called to do the will of the king. Moreover, as they, as they did, his kingdom would extend a little bit each time on earth. In other words, as they stood at the base of Mount Sinai, looking up at the smoke and the, and the lightning and the thunder, the children of Israel would have understood that, that obedience matters. And maybe not for the reason they would have originally thought, they were going to be called to live in a new way, a way in which they would trust God to place the boundaries on their behavior in a way in which they would need to say no to what came naturally to them in order to say yes to what God wanted for them. And just to be clear, Israel wasn't saved through their obedience. This wasn't connected to their identity. Uh, biblically, obedience never saves anybody. Instead, from the very beginning, the Bible's authors record that humans are saved by grace and by grace alone. However, every single time someone in the Bible receives God's grace, he invites them to become a part of helping his kingdom to come by doing his will here on earth as it's done in heaven. God wants his will to be done in the workplace and his will to be done in the context of marriage and in families. He wants his will to be done in every way imaginable because ultimately it's better for us and it's better for creation. And so standing at the base of Mount Sinai, Abraham's descendants would have understood in every single thing they did moving forward, God desired his kingdom to come. Okay, so that's the concept of kingdom and that's what it would have meant to them. But what did they think of when God invited them to be priests of that kingdom? In the ancient world, priests served two primary functions. At first, they had the responsibility of demonstrating in flesh and blood what the God they served was like. Ancient priests didn't simply pray for others or speak for the God they served. A priest's job was to show other people what their God was like. They were called to put their God's character on display. So if the God they served had an angry disposition, you would expect the priest to display anger. And if their God was merciful and loving, you'd expect the priests to display mercy and love. In the ancient world, uh, people looked to priests to learn what the God they served was like. And, and what, what this meant, ideally, is that the nations of the world should have been able to watch Israel to see what Israel's God was like. It's interesting to consider that God had other options to make himself known. And this is something that, that scholars wrestle with all the time. Uh, God could have presented himself to the world in a way that his presence would have been undeniable, but instead, he invited a group of people to represent him 
And he says to them, in effect, you carry my name and my reputation in the world and to the world. And by the way, this helps us get to the heart of why God in the second commandment says to the people, don't misuse my name. Don't attach my name to something that isn't in line with the way I want things to be. You've got to honor my name and keep it holy. So that's the first responsibility of the priest, to show the world what that God is like. The second responsibility of a priest in the ancient world was to be holy. In other words, they were to be uniquely set apart from other people. And that that actually makes sense if you think about it. If the priest is going to show you what the God they served is like, then they would need to be as much like that God as possible. And that would necessarily create distance between the priest and the culture they were called to serve. And if priests didn't stand apart from the culture that they were trying to reach, then their ability to impact that culture would be compromised. And so Israel is called as God's priests, a kingdom of priests, to be holy, to be uniquely set apart so that the world could see what God was like. And so that established, it it shouldn't surprise us that God is heartbroken whenever his bride, whenever his partner, failed to live into her mission. The Old Testament authors record all those times that God's chosen people fell back onto old habits and began to worship other gods, as well as the times that that they seemed to only exist to serve themselves. And God is heartbroken, and God pursues his people and invites them back into this special relationship. Now, Now, at this point, if you're paying attention, a few of you have a really great question, like interesting history, copper mines, cool, but like, what does this have to do with me? And I'm so glad you asked. Not that you did, but I knew you did somewhere deep inside. I'm with you, right? Uh, But actually, this has more to do with us than we could possibly imagine. Check out what one of Jesus' first disciples, a man named Peter, wrote to early Christians. A population of people that it's worth noting consisted of both Jewish and non-Jewish people. So in a letter that made its way into the New Testament of our Bibles, he writes the following. And again, some of these images all of a sudden make so much more sense. He says, but you, y'all, are a chosen people. God has called you out. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness And into his wonderful light, dear friends, he goes on, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. And what he's getting to there is he's like, you no longer belong to the kingdom of this world. You belong to the kingdom of God. So I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. There's things that you used to do when you were a part of the kingdom of this world and they have no part of your life in the kingdom of God, so you need to abstain from them. He goes on, live such good lives among the pagans, which just means people that haven't come to know Jesus yet, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. It's like your life will shine light in darkness as you live this new and better way of life that Jesus has intended for you. Peter says to followers of Jesus, you are called to put God on display in and through your lives. You have been set apart on purpose for a purpose in the world. God desires to use you to help others to come to know him. He wants his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And some of you are like, I've heard that somewhere before. Right. And he wants to partner with you in order to make that happen. 
And, and so, you know, I, I spent time with this this week, and I'm wrestling it down. I said, boy, if I get to the end and I don't ask the pastor question, I, I'm, you know, I should be pulled over and given a ticket for, you know, problems with preaching. But it's like, I got to ask you a question. If you're with us today and you've said yes to Jesus and you are his follower and you belong to him, as you sit here today, does your life, your marriage, your work in school, your, your service as an employee or as an employer, does what you do put on display to the world what it looks like when God's kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven? And, and, and perfection isn't the goal. None of us are doing that perfectly. But, but is, are you making progress in that direction? Are people seeing something of what God is like by watching you? Because that's what God desires for your life. He has saved you by grace. You couldn't earn it and you don't deserve it, but you have been made new. But see, that's not where his will for your life ends. Honestly, I think that's where his will for our lives begins because he wants to use you. He wants to use me to make this world a little more like he wants it to be. And in order for that to happen, just like in the ancient world, your obedience and my obedience matters. As followers of Jesus, we're called to love like Jesus loved and serve like Jesus served. Uh, we're called to love others as God in Christ has loved us. We're called to be patient and kind and honorable and humble and selfless and honest and giving and forgiving. And it's like each and every time we live into that calling, we release a little bit of light into our really dark world. That every time we do this, like we invent, invite a little bit of God's kingdom to come. We chase a little bit of chaos away and, and bring a little more peace. I find that incredibly inspiring. Now, imagine with me that we've hiked on a 72-degree day, not a 104-degree day, up to the top of Mount Timna. And as we stand on the top looking out and, and we've received this, this thought, this teaching, at this point in the talk, what I would do is pull out my prayer shawl. And none of you saw that coming. And I've been so excited. This particular prayer shawl is authentic. It came from China by, by way of Amazon.com. And so if any of you are so inspired, you can get hooked up too. And I noticed that this particular version has letters in English that look like Hebrew, which is not Hebrew, but that's okay. Because <laughs> it was apparently for us. Um, but yeah, so I'd pull up my prayer shawl in order to show you the tassels that are attached to the corners. And actually, there is one more vocab word. I'm just, you're, I'm, I'm full of it. I was like, you're full of it today. I'm full of it today. Here we go. Uh, they're called zit zit, <laughs> like that, t sit sit or something, right? Yeah. And uh, God actually told Abraham's descendants to affix the zit zit to the corners of their garments to remind them what happened at Mount Sinai. Uh, God's instructions to the people is actually recorded in an Old Testament book called Numbers, and it reads this way. God tells the people that throughout the generations to come, you're to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. He says, you will have these tassels to look at so that you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourself by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. And then he says, then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated, set apart. 
on purpose, for a purpose, to your God. And scholars have noted that although God instructs the people to include a blue cord on each tassel, he doesn't tell them why. Which, of course, in you know, the Old Testament documents are, are, are ancient, and so what you have is for thousands of years, Jewish and Christian scholars trying to figure out what's up with the blue thread, right? Because that's what we do when we get into my line of work, right? Why the blue thread? And there's a lot of different theories, but the one that resonates with me is, is the observation that the only other people in the Bible God ever instructed to wear blue were priests. So I think that the blue thread was God's way of saying to his people, I want you to remember not only what you're called to do, but I want you to remember who you are. And I want you to remember why you're here. I want you to remember that I love you like a bride. And I desire to partner with you to show the world what I'm like. I desire to use your one and only life to bring a little bit of order to the chaos of this world. So the way you live each and every moment of each and every day matters. Your obedience matters. In, in fact, and this is our big idea for today, um, obedience actually enables us to live into our mission from God. And it's funny because I, I actually called the talk today, Obedience Matters. And if there was ever a least exciting or a less exciting title, I ran into a pastor friend at Starbucks and he's like, what are you teaching on this Sunday? I'm like, oh, it's called Obedience Matters. He goes, woo, that'll pack them out. You know, it's like, well, but, that, but I was like, that's kind of what it was about. And then he had to endure my whole talk while I was explaining to him why. But yeah, obedience enables us to live into our mission from God. That's the potential that he's placed in each of our lives. And as we surrender our will, his, his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, that brings us uh, to the end of our time together, but my hope is that all of this sparks conversation with whoever you do life with. And, and so whether you're just out to Panera with your beloved and you can have a brief conversation or maybe you gather at some point during the week with some other friends from Keystone or friends from outside Keystone that you somehow coerce into listening to this podcast or whatever. But I want to give you a couple of questions to get you going on conversation. The first one goes like this. Uh, why is it critical to note that before establishing rules, God enters a relationship with his chosen people? And then what happens when rule following is a prerequisite for a relationship? How does that sort of change the equation? Uh, number two. Why do you think that throughout, uh, throughout history, God has chosen human partners to introduce himself to the world? How else might he have made himself known, and what would be the unintended consequences of that strategy? So that's kind of swimming on the deep end. I was pretty proud of that question. I was like, oh yeah, I'm not getting going. Okay, finally, uh, this week I said, your obedience matters to God, but probably not for the reason you think, or reason you first think. How does obedience enable a follower of Jesus to live into their mission? And so hopefully, again, those questions will spark some conversation in your life. Um, and now I'd like to invite you to stand, um, and I'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, one of the, one of the impressions I get from, from reading this ancient account is that you have a lot of faith in people. You meet us with grace, and then you invite us into something that is so much bigger 
than any of us deserve. And you work through us, even in our brokenness. And so I pray that, that this week, um, we would remember. We would remember who we are, and we would remember why we're here. That when we come to a crossroads and need to make a decision, we would make that decision through the filter that your son gave us, and we would ask ourselves, you know, what does love require in this moment? And after that clarity comes, I pray you would give us the courage to do what love requires. We thank you for Jesus who came among us to launch a revolution that is still changing hearts and lives all over the world. We are honored to be yours, and we are honored to be a part of that mission. And so for today, we thank you, we bless you. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Grace and peace, friends. We'll see you next week for part three of Virtual Israel.